All right. All right. I spilled an entire cup of coffee in the front row directly on my shoe. And so that means I am ready to go this morning, apparently. It's good. It's good. All right. Let's get into it, shall we? In the year 386, there was a brilliant man. His name was Augustine, and he was in the midst of an existential crisis. He did not know what he thought anymore. He kind of lost his way. He had built a reputation in the ancient world as one of the most gifted professors of rhetoric. He was famous for his eloquence. He had money. He had, from the outside, everything you think you would want. But he had been visiting an old bishop, a guy named Ambrose in the city of Milan, and he'd been listening to some of his sermons, and this began to throw him off. Augustine had been an adherent to all different types of religions. He had, he had subscribed to numerous different philosophies in his life. He had left Christianity behind when he was a young man, believing that it was a religion for the simple and the uneducated. But his time with Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, had got him thinking and questioning all of this again. But it was not until one day when, Am- when Augustine was in the midst of a great spiritual crisis, in his words, he was weeping in the bitter condition of my heart, when he heard the voice of a child over a fence a little ways away from him. And the, the voice of the child was singing a song. It's not a song he had ever heard before, but he heard this little chanty song that, that a child was singing. And the child just was singing, pick up and read, pick up and read. And in that moment, Augustine thought that this was a command from God, that God might be asking him to pick up and read. And so he went back and he grabbed a collection of Paul's letters that he had been reading on Ambrose's suggestion, and he flipped open this collection of of the Apostle Paul's letters at random. And I think this is the very first story of somebody flipping open, open the Bible and closing their eyes and putting their finger down and thinking that that was a word for God for them. This is this. It all started right here. But when he did that, he read Romans 13.3, and this is what Romans 13.3 says. It says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Now, Augustine had been known to dabble in his fair share of carousing and, uh, and debauchery. And Augustine says that this, that upon reading this scripture, this is what happened. This is in his words from his book called The Confessions. He says, For instantly, as that sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Augustine writes this passage, uh, uh, taking... Um, Augustine writes this passage explaining what had happened to him when he read the scriptures, talking about his conversion of becoming a Christian. And he says, this is the thing that God used to convert him. And the thing that God used to convert him was the scriptures. God used the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul to speak directly to Augustine's heart. And Augustine would go on to become one of the most important pastors of his day and probably the most influential and brilliant Christian in the history of the church. Augustine influenced everything. His influence was massive. But it all started with the scriptures. It all started with the writing of Paul. And I tell you that this story this morning, at the outset of a talk that might be a little bit more technical than what we're used to at Grace Community Church, uh, as we get down into the minutia of the origins of the Bible, Uh, Because it is important that we emphasize the special place 
of God's special communication to us, the Bible, in our lives. Many of us, can, many of us when we look at the material we will be looking at today, could, it's possible that we could get a little bit bogged down in what we're talking about today. Uh, and maybe even some people hear this material and kind of draw unhelpful conclusions at times, like assuming that the Bible is un- unreliable as a source of truth, or thinking that since the Bible was written, translated, and transmitted by humans, that it somehow loses its spiritual significance or its authority. Uh, but that's not the case. That's not the case. And the story of Augustine is a story that I just ran across this week while I was reading a book about Augustine. Uh, was so instructive to me about the power of the scriptures. And though we're talking about the, the kind of nuts and bolts of how we got the scriptures, we don't want to take away for one instance the authority, the power, the effectiveness that the scriptures have over and in our lives. So we laid out last week the case for uh, the case for the nature of the Bible. If you were with us last week, you heard that message. These two messages are kind of of a piece. So if you uh, came in today and you didn't hear last week, it might be helpful for you to go online and listen uh, to that message at cfgrace.community, uh, or you can download our podcast. It might be helpful to give you context because these two messages really are of a piece. Last week we talked about the nature of the Bible, and this week we're talking about the origin of the Bible. And so while today uh, we might be talking a little bit more about, like I said, the nuts and bolts of the Bible, I believe quite heartily that this is going to be an important and instructive message for us. It's important for your faith and for my faith, and I think it's important for our witness to the world. As Christians, we say that the Bible is our rule, our God-breathed book that is authority in our lives. So it's important that we be able to answer questions that people have about what it is, how it was formed, and why we believe it has authority in our lives. This is an important thing. It's kind of like if, you, if your favorite meal was chicken parmesan, and when somebody was like, oh, your favorite meal is chicken parmesan? How do you make chicken parmesan again? You were like, I got no idea. I just eat it, right? And that's one way, that's one way to read the Bible. Um, I, I like chicken parmesan. Uh, that's one way to read the Bible, but the, uh, or to eat chicken parmesan, but uh, you can go a little further, and if you know how to make chicken parmesan right, then you can actually say, I have a thorough understanding of chicken parmesan. We're going to move on. That was a bad analogy. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? There, there's, there is the, the ways in which we use the Bible, and it's not vitally important that you use the Bible for spiritual formation, that you know the, some of the things that we're talking about today. It's still effective in our lives, but I do think it helps us to be informed and credible readers of the Bible, informed and credible Christians. Not incredible Christians, but informed and credible Christians. There we go. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn those over with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is where we're headed to start this morning. Now, if you are reading along with us in our year of biblical literacy and you've been doing our daily readings, you read this passage of Scripture on Friday, so it should be really fresh in your mind. This is the story of God revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. It's a very famous story. Apart from the crucifixion of Jesus, it's pro- thanks to, and thanks to Charlton Heston, it's probably the most famous story uh, in the Old Testament, particularly, and probably in the whole Bible. So when we pick up the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is in the wilderness. He's tending his, his father-in-law's flocks, and he stumbles upon the burning bush. He just kind of runs into it. And out of this burning bush, God calls to him 
and he tells Moses that he is going to he's going to use Moses as a special kind of deliverer that he is going to form he's going to uh, operate in this function for God as a person who will deliver the Israelites out of their slavery in and captivity in Egypt. Now, what I want you to see in this passage of scripture, what I want you to see from this story, uh, is that Moses, up until this point, hasn't really encountered God. He hasn't had an experience with God. He had heard of God. He knew who God was. He knew this God who was the, who was the God of his people, the Israelites. But God identifies himself first and foremost to Moses as that very God, the God of Moses' ancestors. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that helps Moses understand who it is that he's actually talking about in this passage of Exodus chapter 3. But as the story goes on a little bit, Moses becomes unsettled or not actually comfortable with that, with that definition alone right? He, he wants a little bit more information. He, Moses needs a little bit more insight into who it is he's actually speaking to and who it is on whose, on whose behalf he's about to speak for to, um, to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And so in verse 13, Moses asks a little bit deeper question about who this God actually is. And this is what he says beginning in verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What is his name? And then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, this is in what it means that God would reveal him. People who comment a lot about this passage and kind of delve into what it means that God would reveal himself as I am. It's a fascinating passage and we could talk about it all day. But the thing I want to draw out of this this morning is that the God who reveals himself to Moses in this passage is a God who reveals himself in and through his relationship to people through time. Does that make sense? It is, it is God's actions in history that tell us about who he is. Another way of translating this passage, I am who I am, is to say, is God saying, I am, I, I am who I will be. Right? That's another way, of, uh, another way that some, some uh, translators translate this passage. The idea is that God reveals himself in his activity to people over time, which is interesting, isn't it? That this is the way that God chooses to reveal himself. Now, you might be asking yourself, Nick, what does this have to do with the origins of the Bible? Right? Where, where have we gone? Why have you taken me to this place? And I would say that the Bible, for the most part is the written record of God's self-revelation through time in history. This is what the Bible is. It's good. It, uh, I would say that the Bible is just that. People, like we talked about last week, normal people, sinful people, experienced God. They had some type of encounter with God, similar to how God had an encounter with God. Uh, Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush. Uh, sometimes the, the, the experience they have is a direct experience, and sometimes it's not quite so direct as in the book of Esther. If you've ever, if you've ever read the book of Esther, you'll, you'll know that the name of God isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet there is this deep sense that God is involved in what is happening there. Uh, 
but basically, this is instructive for us because it shows us that God reveals himself in time through history. And the Bible is essentially the story of God's self-revelation in time as he re has revealed himself to humanity. I think that's probably the best definition of what the Bible is. And all of this culminates with his ultimate self-revelation, God's ultimate act of self-revelation of telling humanity who he is when he actually incarnates a human being and comes to live life with us. This is the ultimate revelation of who God is. But the Bible, but the Bible you can say, is in some sense the written record of God's self-revelation in time, right? And all of the books that have been written about this God, uh, about this God's self-revelation are the Bible, right? All of the books kind of slammed together uh, and put in one place are what we call the Bible. Now, the word Bible we get from the Latin Biblia, which just means, surprise, surprise, the books. That's what the word means, which is actually what the Bible is. It is a collection or library of ancient books. We think of it as being of a piece, of um, one whole book, but the Bible is actually numerous books, right, 66 of them, that we've put together. And this collection of books is incredibly diverse. They range from history and poetry and songs, prophecy, wisdom, and even correspondence, just letters. But the Bible you have in front of you today, the Christian Bible is comprised primarily, and many of you know this, but we're just by way of review, primarily of two collections of books, two different sections, two different parts. The first collection we commonly call the Old Testament, and the second section we refer to commonly as the New Testament. Now, uh, the word testament is actually a bad translation of the Greek word that we render translation. A better translation of that word is covenant, is covenant. And so in a sense, you could say that what we are reading when we are reading the Old Testament is the book of the Old Covenant, and what we are reading when we read the New Testament is the book of the New Covenant. And this is actually a really helpful way of thinking about what the Bible is. The first collection really uh, of the Bible, the Old Testament, really chronicles the story of God through his self-revelation to the Hebrew people, also called in the story of the Israelites, the people of Israel, or the Jewish people. Now, this is important because the Old Testament very much originated, as we spoke about last week, with, from within the culture of the Hebrew people. This, they, it is their book. It is their language. It is their idioms. It is their culture that is suffused throughout the book of the Old Testament. According to the Bible uh, itself, God's first communication to these people was oral, right? It was, it was not written down. It was not the very first communication. And it was later that these oral traditions were in some way handed down, okay? That's how it happened. And then they were written down. Moses is really the central figure in what we call the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and it is commonly believed that Moses wrote at least, um, at least most of that or, or at least oversaw the writing of much of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. You know, in Jesus' day, and you can read this in the New Testament, when people refer back to the first five books of the Bible, to the Torah, they often refer to them as the books of Moses. And a couple times in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, quoting from the Torah, he says exactly, Moses said, right? It was a way of saying, in the Torah, dot, dot, dot. It was a, it was a common use or way of, of referring to the Torah. Now, we know that there has been some editing and some compiling of this, this material, particularly because in, uh, in, the, in the Torah, in the f first five books of the Bible, we have recorded Moses' death. 
So we know he couldn't have written the whole thing himself because I don't know about you, but I, have no, I will probably not write about my death, right? That will be somebody else, probably. Uh, so, so we know that there's some, some compiling and some editing that's happening that goes into these books. But essentially in the Bible, uh, in the rest of the Bible, not just the Torah, but the, the rest of the Bible, the, there's 30, so there's, what's five plus four? That's 39. Uh, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. See, that's math on the fly, people. That's now at ordinary mind right there. But what we have in the Bible or the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament scriptures are a collection of 39 books that grew gradually over time and that came to be assembled into a collection of books that we would call holy scriptures that Jesus actually recognized as holy scriptures. We know that by about the year 400, by the time of the prophet Ezra, this the collection of scripture that we call the Hebrew Bible was essentially closed, that there was no more added to the Bible. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, tells us that no book was added to the Hebrew scriptures after the book of Malachi. But just like the books of Moses, the rest of the Old Testament is a kind of recorded response to, uh, to God in, in history. This is what the Bible is, essentially. The structure that we have, uh, and what, what's interesting is that the, though the structures might vary and the, and the form of literature might be different, in many ways it is a kind of written response to a thing that God did, a kind of self-revelation of God in time. This is what we have when we have the Bible. Now, the structure we have in our Bibles, which goes Torah, um, I, I'm not, it's not in my head right now, but the structure we have in our Bibles right now, the, the, the chronology of the books, is not the way that the books are laid out in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually different. We get our structure um, from uh, the Latin Vulgate and by way of the Septuagint. So these are two translations of, of the Hebrew Bible, and we take the, our order of books in the Old Testament from those. But uh, Christians um, receive the Hebrew Scriptures as Scripture, and this is the easiest thing we'll do today. Uh, the reason that Christians receive the Hebrew Scriptures as Scripture is because Jesus did. There you go. Move on, moving on. Um, Jesus loved and trusted the Bible. And we know this for sure. He says it multiple times. But one of the places he says it is in Matthew 5.18. Um, this is what he says. For truly, he's talking to uh, the Pharisees here. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's not talking to the Pharisees. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Strike that, reverse it. Uh, and this should give us confidence that the Bible, uh, and, and this is really important, that this should give us confidence that the Bible we have is the Bible that Jesus loved and the Bible that Jesus called Scripture. Now, part of the reason we know that the, the, the Hebrew Bible that we have can be trusted is because we actually have a thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have any of you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Raise your hand. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by a shepherd boy who was throwing rocks into caves in the Judean desert, and he threw a rock into a cave, and he heard a clank, and he, he realized that he had broken a clay pot, and, he got some, and this stirred up some information, and so th some archaeologists went, and what they discovered was uh, just a treasure trove of ancient documents from a community of people uh, outside of... Um, uh, out in the Judean wilderness. It was a place called Qumran. And what they discovered here were copies of the Hebrew Bible that actually date from before the time of Jesus. And what's so important or fascinating about this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you ever hear people talk about this, now you'll know, 
is because the copies of the Hebrew Bible that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were almost identical to the copies of the, of the Bible that we have today. Now, why is this important? This is important because we know that the Bible we are reading or we read it is nearly identical to the Bible that Jesus read. And this should give us confidence, right? Confidence that when Jesus says that the Bible should be trusted as an authority in our life, we can trust it as an authority in our life. That's why the, that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are a big deal. So, uh, so this is functionally how we got the Old Testament. It is the, it is the written uh, record of the, God's self-revelation in history, and we can trust it because Jesus trusted it. Because we, as Christians, we have faith in Jesus, and we listen to Jesus, and we trust what Jesus trusts, and Jesus trusts the Old Testament. So that is functionally the origins of the Old Testament. But that is not all that we're doing today. We also have to talk about the New Testament. And the New Testament is a little different because the New Testament was written after Jesus was born, after Jesus died, right? Jesus uh, was not around when the New Testament was written. Whereas the Old Testament was written over a span of over a thousand years, the New Testament was written in almost 50. So it's a different time frame within which these scriptures uh, came about. Um, and these scriptures specifically uh, form for us a kind of uh, authoritative uh, rule. Or have you ever, any of you ever heard of the scriptures referred to as canon? That's a word that just means rule. It's like a, the, the word means measuring stick. It's, it's the rule or measuring stick of, of the Christian life, and that's what the word means. But uh, the, the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, is this fascinating document, this, uh, again, collection of books. But it's this fascinating document because it, uh, unlike the Old Testament, it, is, it, uh, it sprung up in a relatively short period of time in this new movement of people called Christians early in the first centuries uh, of, uh, after Christ began to form this book into a coherent whole. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is really just look at that, at the formation of the New Testament for us so that we can have some insights into what it is and why we read it and why we can trust it. All right? All right. So the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which is often called Common Greek, which is different than Classical Greek. Oh, man, this is boring, right? Uh, 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 classical Greek is the Greek that... Uh, you hear that Plato was written in classical Greek is the is the Greek that was written uh, that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written in. Koine Greek is the is kind of common Greek. It's the Greek of the streets uh, in in the days of Jesus. Uh, now uh, the Church of the New Testament uh, is the is the people who established the canon of the New Testament, right? It was produced out of their life, and they are the ones who established it. Um, but particularly, the books that we have of the New Testament uh, were written by early Christians uh, and were, was, were based primarily on the authority of Christ as mediated through the authority of the apostles, those uh, individuals who were specifically selected by Christ to be the primary teachers or leaders in the early church. And these people in this time of the apostles, roughly 90 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, within, within that, uh, not 90, but 50 years to A.D. 90, roughly, 
um, these people begin to form the, uh, write the letters of the Bible, and then, the, and then those letters <coughs> of the Bible began to be formed into a coherent whole as different churches received letters and received these books and would copy them and pass them on to other churches. The, the, the letters and the books of the New Testament became valuable to the church as they were used within the life of the church. And particularly when a letter, say, from the Apostle Paul was written to a church at, say, Corinth, um, that, that was seen as valuable to the, to the Corinthians. And so what they probably did was then share that with another church, and then they shared it with another church, and then they copied it, and then they shared it with another church. And as, as these letters proliferated and they became useful within the worshiping context of the church, the church began to place higher and higher value on these texts, of, uh, uh, on, these, on these writings, to the point where they began to become considered scripture. They began to carry the authority of God. Now, uh, the question that many of us have is who decided on what is scripture and what is not scripture? And if you have ever watched The Da Vinci Code, right? Have you ever, any of you watched that movie, big Tom Hanks fans, uh, or read The Da Vinci Code? Probably fewer of us. Uh, Dan Brown likes to say that that uh, the Emperor Constantine kind of got together and they made a top-down decision as to what books go in the Bible and what books don't go in the Bible. That's not how the Bible was formed, actually. The funny thing about the formation of the, of the New Testament is that no one individual made a decision about what books are in the Bible. No church council made a decision about what books go in the Bible. Some, uh, some leaders within the church had some opinions and they shared their opinions, but their opinions weren't final. The truth of the matter is, is that the reason we have the Bible in its current form is through this process over time of the church coming together, worshiping, reading these books, the books that became, uh, that were most useful within the worshiping life of the church are the books that became scripture. And the church, and via this process that the Holy Spirit carried out in the church, we have the Bible. Fascinating, isn't it? That there was no kind of top-down authority that made this decision. There was debate in the, in, the, in the early church about what books should or shouldn't be considered scripture. Some argued that books like Hebrews and James and the book of Revelation should be left out. You know, some, of, some people argued early on that if a, if a book wasn't written by an actual apostle, that it shouldn't be counted as scripture. But we know that that's, that didn't win out because we have the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews that, as far as we know, were not written by apostles. And yet, are counted in, in, this, in the Bible as scripture. But over time, through this process, the church began to agree over and over and over again about what books counted and what books didn't count. What books, uh, what books were, in, were to be uh, viewed as scripture and what books shouldn't. And as early as the second century, the church father origin, uh, church fathers began to give their lists of what they thought script, what books counted as scripture and what books didn't. And the church father origin had a list of books that was basically the New Testament that we identify today. But the the debate was really over by the year 367. That's the year that the, uh, the bishop Athanasius of Alexander uh, he wrote an Easter letter every year to his uh, to the churches that were under his authority. And in that letter, he listed out the books of the Bible as they exist today. And from that point forward, there was really no argument. Now, Athanasius did not rule on which books were scripture and which books weren't. 
he simply said, this is what, he simply acknowledged what the church had come to believe, that these were the books of scripture. These were the, these were the books that really mattered. And, and from that point on, it was really done. There was really no more debate after that. Now, uh, the question is, what's the process by which we get the scriptures? What, what, what happened exactly? And so I have a quick thing up here, just three, three, th- three ways that, the, that we come to receive the scriptures. First, letters were written and sent to people in churches, or books of the New Testament were written and sent to people in churches. Then those letters were copied and circulated, Right? And, and, through, uh, and th- those letters came to be used and valued by the church as the special words from God and were preserved and added together with the other writings that were considered scripture. This is how we got the Bible. I think sometimes what we want is like an authority figure to say this is what it is. And the fact that it's a little nebulous makes us a little bit nervous, right? But I think it's kind of beautiful. I think it's kind of beautiful. Because you, know, because you know this process, receiving the Bible in this way, you know what it means? It means that the Holy Spirit was in charge of it. <laughs> no person was actually in charge of it. It means that the Holy Spirit, Spirit mediated the formation of the Bible through the life of the church. This is how we receive the Bible. And so when we ask the question, what is the origin of the Bible? The, que- the answer is... Uh, the origin of the, the answer is the church, the church. The question, the answer to the question of what is the origin of the Bible, the origin of the Bible is the church. The church, it is the church's book, and the church decided through this process over time what the Bible is. Uh, remember that during this time in which the Bible was formulated, there wasn't multiple churches. There wasn't like a Lutheran and a Methodist and an Assemblies of God. There was just one <laughs> church, and that made it a little easier. Um, but through a process of what we call discernment, uh, different Christian communities read these documents and found within them God's special communication. And then, they were, uh, and then those books were compiled, and they were circulated as the Bible. Now, it should be noted that none of the scriptures in the Bible uh, that we consider the Bible were ever written outside the lifespan of any of the, the apostles. One way of thinking about what we have in the scriptures is kind of uh, a combined wisdom of the apostles or the apostles' teaching codified into scriptures and then handed down to us. And so one way of thinking about the Bible is to say um, that, the, that the early church had the authority of the apostles and that, uh, that authority was delegated to the scriptures and now we have the authority of the scriptures in the place of the original apostles. Does that make sense? It's just a way of thinking about the scripture that can be helpful for us sometimes. But basically, the scriptures are this process of the Holy Spirit working through people's lives to superintend the process of our receiving the Bible in its current form. And this is miraculous. This is miraculous. The Bible, that it is coherent at all, right, is miraculous given this process. This process, like we said last week, was messy and had uh, fallible people involved in the process, that we have a Bible that is this, this coherent and this beautiful is a miracle. It really is. And for me, it is a testament to the goodness of a God who would give us a book that is this beautiful and this instructive and that the Holy Spirit was active in and through it to bring it to us in this way. It is, it is a really, really amazing book, and that's how we got it. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, uh, for the rest of my time this morning, I kind of want to talk about, and I told you this was going to feel a little bit like a classroom at points, I want to talk about mistakes in the Bible, 
mistakes in the Bible. Have any of you ever run across anybody who said that the Bible has mistakes? You can just raise your hand. A few of you, yeah. Um, it's possible that you've run across a book or a group of people who would argue that the Bible is not reliable due to a number of mistakes that are contained within it. And so I just want to talk about that for a little bit this morning. Um, there are a lot of numbers that people throw around when they talk about mistakes or errors in the Bible. You, you run across this number sometimes. In, in my reading, I've run across it a few times. People will say, there are 20,000 mistakes in the Bible. How can it be trusted? Now, that number needs a little bit of qualification, actually. And what people actually mean by a mistake also needs to be qualified a little. Uh, when we hear there are 20,000 mistakes in the Bible or something like that, it causes us to go, oh my, how can a book with this many mistakes be trusted? How can I base my life on it? Uh, and that's what I want to just kind of clear up for us for a second. If this isn't your thing, if you're not worried about it, just disregard what I'm about to say here. But for some of us, this is important stuff. So um, there are in existence... Uh, 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament or of the Bible. 5,300, that's quite a few. Uh, that's more than any other ancient book that we have in existence. That's, uh, we have, with greater certainty, we can say that the books of the Bible represent the original articles or the original, like say, the original letter of Paul. We can say with greater certainty that the, that the, that the copies of that letter that we have uh, are more are vastly more accurate than say the writings of Plato because there are so much there are so many fewer manuscripts or copies of those types of ancient works. The Bible, just speaking from a purely historical perspective, is hands down the most reliable uh, writing from antiquity, any type of writing that, from antiquity that exists in the world, hands down. Now, of those 5,300 uh, manuscripts, most, many of them are kind of fragments. They're little pieces of the Bible that have been dug up or discovered or handed down. Uh, and, many, uh, and many of those uh, fragments or little pieces are a part of different scriptures that we have. So we might have a, a part of the Gospel of Luke, or we might have a part of one of Paul's letters. And, and, those and those different types of manuscripts date back as far, as far as I know, the oldest one that we have uh, goes all the way back, which is a, a portion of the Gospel of Luke, to the year 175, I think is when it starts. The range is from like 175 to 220, somewhere in there. But the oldest complete manuscripts that we have, so there's three really important ones, and those range from the year 300 to 400 A.D., Okay, so those are the those are the the oldest versions of the Bible that we have in complete form. Um, they are they are called codexes, and a codex was just an ancient form of a book. It was a way of putting all the books of the Bible together. Uh, when people now, when people say that there are mistakes in the Bible, what they actually mean is that these different manuscripts differ from one another. Does that make sense? So there are differences between manuscripts. Uh, of the Bible. And, it, uh, it's, and it's common to hear people kind of trying to undercut the authority of the scripture or the reliability of the scripture based on what they would say are thousands of errors between these distinct manuscripts, okay? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about errors, which is a different thing than saying there's just mistakes in the Bible, right? It's a slightly different thing. 
Now, most of the differences that, that exist, most of, uh, of the what scholars call variants between these manuscripts are spelling errors. Most of them are. Some of them are uh, words that are left out, and some of them are at extra words added in, some little between these manuscripts. But in general, in general, most of the differences are spelling errors. It's a word that's spelled wrong between one book and another book. And you know why that happened? This is how people would copy books in the ancient world. This was before Xerox. This was before Kinko's. In a darkly lit room, in a room that was lit by candlelight, there would be one person standing up who would have a manuscript of the Bible. And that person would be reading, and there would be a room full of scribes sitting on a, sitting on a chair uh, with the, uh, a piece of paper or a piece of papyrus on their lap, and they would be listening to this person read the Bible, and they would be copying it down. This is how the Bible was reproduced. And shocker of all shockers, some of these guys were not as good at spelling <laughs> as others were. This is why I can't be a scribe. Uh, uh, very often they would, um, they would transpose words, right? Or you would see a, a, a word, uh, one word that you could tell wasn't the right word there because they heard the wrong word. Right? This is, this is what most of what, what scholars don't call errors or mistakes, they call textual variants, right? There's some difference between the text or variant readings of the text. Now, um, most of the, what people call errors or variant readings look like this, and I have an example for you. Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, most of your Bibles say the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. This is Matthew telling the story of Christ's birth. But in certain texts, it says the birth of Jesus Christ. In another, in another text, it says the birth of Christ Jesus. In another text, it says the birth of Jesus. And in another text, it says the birth of Christ. Now, the question I have for you is, does that significantly affect your faith? No. Okay, you can answer it. No, it doesn't, right? Most of the, most of the variants between texts look like that. They're, they're, they're either simple spelling errors or they are differences in wording. Sometimes in Greek, uh, word order doesn't matter because you know what, a, word's, you know what a, a verb is by the way that the verb ends. And so word order, unlike English, doesn't matter. And so word orders can be different in different texts, but it doesn't greatly affect the meaning of a sentence. Now, uh, that's what the vast majority of the quote-unquote errors in the Bible are. That's what min many, most of them are that. And through a process of what they call textual criticism, uh, scholars do their best to try to get back to the, the, the most original meaning of the text. Okay? Uh, they kind of compare all of the manuscripts, they have them all, and they look at them and they say, we think based on this or based on that, we think this is, this is the, the most accurate version. All right? And that's how we have the Bible today. Now, um, there are other passages in your Bible that, that are different than just these spelling errors. Now, if you have your Bibles, can you do me a favor and turn to the end of the book of Mark for me? The end of the book of Mark. So this is in your Bible, so I'm just showing it to you this morning. I'm not doing anything, not doing anything that isn't already in your Bible. Look down to verse 9 at the end of the book of Mark. 
And what, many Bibles, what you'll see there is a bracket. Who has a bracket? Raise your hand if you have a bracket in your Bible. Does it, do any of you have any writing in your Bible, any commentary that says in some manuscripts this isn't da-da-da-da? So um, this is an example of an ending of a gospel that some of the manuscripts have and some of the manuscripts don't have, aren't present, right? And this is specifically an issue with those three uh, really early big codexes. Now, the reason it's included here primarily is because the scholars don't really know. They don't know. Uh, Based on all of the manuscripts of the Bible that we have, they don't know whether this was in the original text or it wasn't. And so because they don't know, they want to honor your intellect and include it, (laughs) right? Does this make sense? Now, uh, the question, the, the central question we have when we run into big issues like this whether the ending of a book is actual, was actually in the original writing of the Gospel of Mark or not, is, does this affect our faith? Does this affect our faith, right? That's a good question to ask when you run into something like this. And you will run into it because you're reading through the Bible this year, and if you're actually doing it and not just lying to us and telling us that you're doing it, you will read this, right? So it's kind of good that I explain it to you. Um, the truth of the matter is that the ending on the end of Mark's Gospel this ad, this, w- regardless of whether it is original or not, we have this story in the other Gospels. We have the same account. And so there's no question as for, really, to the history of the, of the story, whether it happened or not. The question is just whether Mark included it or not. Does that make sense? And, and that, that influences us a little bit when we're reading the text. Uh, it helps us know that what we're reading, though there is some question about it, and we have to be intellectually honest about what it is we're reading, we also know that it doesn't in any way cast dispersions on our faith, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't remove from us the reliability of Scripture. Does this make sense? Now, uh, one uh, biblical scholar who talks about all of the errors that occur in the Bible, a guy named Neil Lightfoot, says this. He says, the variant readings in the manuscripts are not of such a nature that they threaten to overthrow our faith. Except for a few instances, we have an unquestioned text. And even then, not one principle of faith or command of the Lord is involved. If you take all of the quote-unquote mistakes in the Bible and you remove them, or, and you say all of those variant readings, we, we're going to take those out. Do you know what we have? We have the exact same faith we have today. No significant doctrine of the Bible is altered. No significant belief about who Jesus is is changed. The truth of the matter is, is that the Bible we have, more than any other ancient book that has ever existed or that we know of, is as reliable as the Bible is. It doesn't exist. And once again, what a miracle and what a beautiful thing that God would give us a book like this and allow us to base our lives on it. The point is that the, and the Bible can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. There are all kinds of issues that, that go into this, and there are all kinds of smarter that are people that are way smarter than me who do this work. But the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible can be trusted. You can trust the Bible, and I can trust the Bible. The Bible is still a big and complicated book. The Bible still requires effort, right, for us to read and translate it well. But it is also a kind of miracle. (laughs) It really is. And it is beautiful. 
and it is worthy of our trust. It really is. It is a storehouse of God's wisdom. It is the story of God's interaction with humanity down through time. And we are called as readers of the Bible to, to live into that story, to live into that story. This book, the Bible, is the, is the record of God's self-revelation in history to humanity. And it can be trusted. And it can be trusted. Now, the reason we uh, did this today was because I think it's really important that we be honest about what the Bible actually is. Because when we're not honest about what the Bible actually is, the first time a student goes to college and somebody says, there's 20,000 errors in the Bible, they go, ah, and they drop their Bible and they never go back to it, right? Because we're not honest with them about what it actually is and how it was composed. But rather, an informed faith is a steady faith, right? An informed faith is a reliable faith. And I want our church to be a church of an informed and reliable faith, which is why we're doing this today. And it's why we're spending so much time in the Bible itself. Now, uh, what time is it? It's 11, it's 1110. I'm going to do something that I wasn't planning to do. And it might not uh, come, nothing might come of it. Does anybody have any questions? If you don't, that's great. But does anybody have any questions about the Bible? We're just going to turn this into a classroom for a second. Jen, lay it on me. Yes. Yes. So uh, the story I told, I started out at the beginning of this, of, of this thing was about Augustine uh, reading the scriptures and God speaking to him through that. And that's a valid way of reading the scriptures, right? But the scriptures carry authority for us primarily in what they meant to the first readers of the scripture, right? So... Um, an example of this that we, we run into now, which, which is controversial, is when uh, Paul says that women should have their head covered, right? Is any, any of you familiar with this? And uh, most Christians today don't take that to mean that all women have to have their head covered. Now, what's fascinating, I ran across this a few months ago when I was reading a book by a, a female scholar. What's fascinating about that passage of scripture is that um, in the ancient world, if a woman didn't have her hair, her hair covered, it meant that she could be used and abused by any man that wanted to. A head covering was a sign of respect, that a woman who had her hair covered was worthy of respect. A woman who didn't have her hair covered was not worthy of respect. Does this make sense? And when Paul says a woman should have her hair covered, and he says all women in the church need to cover their hair, what he's saying is regardless of whether the world says you're worthy of respect, when you come into the church, you're worthy of respect, right? It's beautiful. It's about ascribing worth and value to women, right? That's what, the, that's what it's about. But we read it and we're like, Ashley, get that bonnet out right now, right? That's what, we talk, that's what we think it means in our context. But in the original context of the day, it was all about the value and worth of women as created in the image of God and being worthy of respect in the church, right? So, so we so that's what the text means, and we have to read it in the light of what it meant to its first audience. And when we, when we understand that and do that hard work, we then can come to a place where we can go, gosh, that's a really easy import, right? Women, Paul's saying all women are worthy of respect. We can say, gosh, God values all women. All women are worthy of respect too, right? Does it make sense? Great, great question, Jen. That was good. Does anybody have any other questions? Anybody have, I'm going to assume do one more thing. Uh, anybody have any questions about why uh, certain strands of Christians like Catholics have a different Bible than we do? 
right? You ever wonder about this? So this is called the Apocrypha. Is anybody familiar with this? Yeah, lay it on me. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the, yeah, the apocryphal books of the Bible are actually apocryphal, right? Even Catholics call them deuterocanonical, which means kind of other than canonical. And so even most Catholic, most Catholic scholars that you run across will even say that these books don't raise to the level of authority of the scriptures, but we just add them in because we think they're kind of important to read. All right, so that's one thing you, you need to notice. The other thing is that um, all of the apocryphal books are from the Old Testament or the intertestamental period. They're for this 400 years between, the prof, uh, between Malachi and our New Testament. So they fall within that range, most of them. Um, and uh, they're added in for a, a number of reasons, but no early list of, uh, of the Bible has those in them. Right, so the the list that I read earlier of of Athanasius doesn't have them. The uh, origins list of the of the early New Testament scriptures don't have them. Uh, the Septuagint doesn't carry them with it, which is the Greek translation of the of the Bible that Jesus probably knew the best. So none of those books have those. They're added more as kind of like extra or add-on. As historical documents, they're valuable, right? As, as we understand and read history of the inter intertestamental period, that period of 400 years between the end of the Bible and the beginning of Jesus' life, they're valuable there, but ultimately they don't raise to the level of Scripture. So one more. Lay it on me, and then we'll be done with this one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question is, how do we read the Bible as scripture, as God's word, as opposed to as kind of just a document that I'm just getting information, right? So that, uh, so there's two ways to read the Bible, right? There's, you can read the Bible devotionally, right? And you can read the Bible historically. You can read it as a document that needs to be studied by scholars and institutions of higher learning, and you can read it as scripture, as this living and active word that has import for my life, right? Um, there are times, if, you, if you're like me, that I read the Bible, and it doesn't feel particularly living and active. It just feels like a historical document, right? Have you ever woke up in the morning, you're like, I'm going to read the Bible now, and you read it, and you're like, who's the son of what? <laughs> right? No, no, it didn't feel like there was much spiritual import there at that time. Um, that is natural, and it's okay. But what we need to understand, and what has been valuable for me in this process, occasionally when the Bible feels like a kind of a stale or an old book, right? Because it can feel that way. Particularly if you grew up in the church, and you grew up listening to people talk about the Bible, right? You're like, yeah, I know that one. Heard that one 50 times. Like, I'm keep it moving. Um, the truth of the matter is part of the way we understand the Bible and we learn the, the Bible's value to us is primarily by studying it, the truth, would be, the truth be told. It's kind of like what I said with the head coverings earlier. Like many of you probably didn't know that, and now there's some spiritual import there that is of value to you, right? There's some, there's some real and true spiritual import. So that's one thing, right? So that as we study the Bible, as we, as we look at it more closely, what it says is valuable is truth is God's special communication as we come to understand what it is and how it works um, it, it has more spiritual import the second thing is that we have to do the Bible we have to do what it says right now this can come sometimes get a little complicated because in many parts the Bible's a story right so how do I do the book of Acts right it's a story it's like how do I do Peter Rabbit right like how does it work it's hard to do a story right 
But, um, <laughs> but uh, we have to enact the Bible. So the Bible was written to us as what, what certain scholars call a speech act. When I tell my son, have you ever done this? Your, your son or daughter um, gets in a fight at school, and rather than saying, don't fight at school, you sit them down and you tell them a story about a time you got in a fight at school and how that fight didn't do anything good for you, right? And it's, it's through the speech act, right, that you're attempting to communicate to your child that fighting isn't good and this is why, right? But you do it by telling a story. And the same is true of the Bible. The Bible is telling us through stories, through letters, through uh, records of history, how it is we should act. We are called to respond to the Bible, no matter whether we feel it or not. Which means that um, when Jesus, for instance, tells us the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That is a story that requires a kind of response. It is speech that requires an act on our part, right? And, and I think it's pretty clear to all of us in that instance what we are to do. We are to love our neighbor, right? Uh, actively with our lives, love our neighbor. And so to the extent that the Bible might not give us warm fuzzies every morning, it is always a book that requires action on our part. Does this make sense? It is always something that uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, requires some type of action, right? If, it, if we're called to love our neighbor, we're called to love our neighbor, right? And we know this to be true in our, in our regular lives. We are called, and this is the last thing I'll do, um, you are called, if you're married in this place, to love your spouse, right? You're, uh, please say yes, my gosh. <laughs> you're called to love your spouse, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you will always feel like loving your spouse, correct? Thank you. Please be with me here. I'm not... Don't make me feel like the worst married person in the room. Uh, you are called to love your spouse, right? And that doesn't mean like you always feel like loving your spouse, but you're still called to do it. You won't always do it, but you are, you're called to obey, right? And to do that thing. You're to act loving towards your spouse, whether you feel it or not. And the Bible, as God's special communication to us, is in, in some sense like that. It is this book that is that's supposed to give kind of uh, order and structure to our lives. It's not a list of rules. It's not that easy. But uh, it is this book that, we are, that is, calls us to action, regardless of whether we feel like acting or not. Does this make sense? And so as we do that work of acting in line with it, in faith, it conforms our hearts. It creates us. It, um, it, it forms us into Jesus' disciples. And as you do the work of acting out the Bible— of responding to it with the way you live your life, what often happens is our hearts are transformed in that process. And so that's what I would say to people who are like, ah, I didn't get God's word today for me. Well, just do what it says. You'll get there. All right? All right. I think we're done. Sound good? Let's pray. Um, if you never want another message like this ever again, uh, you can email me at... No. All right. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, and we thank you for gathering us together on this blustery winter day to learn a little bit more about the Bible. We pray uh, that this wouldn't be the end of our exploration of your word and what it is and its value for us, but rather that this would just be the beginning of a continued journey for the rest of our lives of being people of the book, people who invest our lives in the significance and the value of the Bible, people who, uh, who grow to see it as your special communication to us, who base our lives on it. 
God, we love you, and we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray it all in your name. Amen, and amen, and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.